Sure, well, sure. We'll get right into the faith questions. Yeah. My religious history, as you put it. <laughs> yes. Well, at any rate, yeah, I... Uh, First question, was I raised Catholic? Yes, I was. I was baptized when I was an infant and uh, raised in the Catholic faith uh, through uh, my, my church, my school, and my parents. Uh, of course, I, as you already know, uh, my dad was the, my biggest single influence in my life during my formidable years from ages about five or six up through, well, up through the time I got into college because my mom was... Uh, at some point there, by the time I was about five years old, she was sick and kind of out of the picture. She was in a right. TB sanitarium. So it was my dad who raised me. And so all of the elements of my faith that came from family came through him. And he was, um, he was a traditional uh, Catholic of Polish descent, which means essentially... I mean, the whole country of Poland was pretty much Roman Catholic back in the late 1800s and uh, up through early 1900s. And so, and he, his parents kind of, you know, picked up that, that faith over there and brought it with them. Um, and so, you know, he, he, he followed the Catholic Church's teachings as best he knew how. Um, mm -hmm. He didn't have a whole lot of education himself. And so, you know, he never really received uh, much education in his faith. It was simply through the practice of his parents that, that he learned his faith, going to Mass and all. And, you know, in fact, some, sometimes when I have thought about it, I've wondered how he managed to pick anything up, you know, I mean, because um, they, they had very limited access to, to English-speaking people, like his parents, you know, his, I guess his dad spoke pretty fluent English, though, come to think of it. I never met his dad, <laughs> my grandfather's Murph. Um, I did okay. meet my grandmother, of course, and visited with her many, many times. But she spoke mostly Polish. <laughs> she learned all of her English through her children who went to, you know, English-speaking schools. Right. And so... Uh, and that's, you know, that's primarily the way in which you pass along your faith is through the spoken word. I mean, there's, there's practices, you know, going to Mass and things like that. But, uh, but an awful lot of your own faith is developed through the spoken word. So I sometimes wonder how my dad managed to pick up all of the, uh, you know, the deep faith that he had. But he was a very faithful Catholic, and he made, made sure I was faithful to the practice of my faith anyway. And uh, so at any rate, it, yeah, I, I, I was born and raised in a Catholic environment. And of course, in the, in the early 40s, um, being raised in a Catholic environment was a lot easier because around my neighborhood, I mean, it, I think the, the, the population uh, was probably 25% Catholic or something like that in Cincinnati, but uh, oh, wow. so it, wasn't, it wasn't overwhelming in, in the Catholic religion. But on the other hand, uh, it wasn't under attack by anybody either. <laughs> sure. You know, I mean, there was no, no external pressures or anything, either politically or otherwise, to, uh, to, to kind of push you out of your faith or the practice of your faith. Uh, and the laws that were written on the books then uh, tended to favor moral life, you know, 
life based on the knowledge of a creator. I mean, that's the way our whole constitution was written, and you know, our Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. All of the founding fathers believed in a uh, in a God that created us and uh, gave us all that we have. So, in a sense, that that's kind of the the environment that I remember being raised in. It was not not difficult at all to uh, remain in, in the Catholic faith. There was no hardly any temptations, if you will, to uh, to wander away from it. I, I see nowadays there's, you know, goodness sakes, teenagers have huge numbers of temptations to, to wander away from their faith because of all the various messages that are being broadcast and put out on uh, TV and radio and advertising and books and magazines and movies and, and whatever, all the ideologies that are bouncing around. Uh, it's hard for, I think, for a youngster nowadays to uh, remain faithful to his faith because it's being challenged in so many ways. It's, you know, it's like, hey, what, that the, what you're doing doesn't make sense, if you will. Uh, at any rate, right. I didn't have that, that situation, <laughs> and I'm grateful for it. I'm not sure how I would have been able to fare with, uh, with all the challenges that young people have nowadays. Because, um, you know, the second, one of the questions you had is, have you ever left the faith or the church? Um, and no, I, I never even considered it. I mean, and that's when I look back, I realize that's all God's grace that I never even considered leaving my faith because as I grew older, and I got into my 20s, 30s, and 40s, uh, there were challenges to my faith. But, um, but through God's grace, I, w- I was able to hold on to what He had given me. Um, at any rate, you asked though, was my faith important to me? throughout my childhood, high school, and college. And all I can do is uh, say a, a profound yes. Uh, very, very important to me. Uh, even though I, mean, I had the same kinds of uh, desires and whatever and interests as a teenager and, and going through high school and college, um, there were a lot of secular interests. I mean, I, I enjoyed being outdoors with people, playing sports and going to dances and listening to music and having picnics and, you know, all kinds of what I'll call external activities um, that didn't necessarily reinforce my faith, but many of them did, actually. Um, nonetheless, uh, I had no, uh, no, no desire to leave the church ever, and as a matter of fact, I remember uh, when I was in high school, grade school and high school, um, my faith was very important to me. I, it probably was because I was surrounded by a lot of people who were very faithful to their faith. Um, I was taught by by nuns in my whole through throughout my whole grade school years. I had nuns teaching me Catholic nuns, and in high school I went to a Catholic high school uh, where almost all of the teachers there were either priests or brothers of the Marianist order. Okay. Uh, there, were, there were a few lay teachers, but not many. Uh, I don't remember ever having, having one of those lay teachers in any classes. Um, what I had was priests and brothers. And so that influenced me a lot, and it kept me very, very strong in my faith. And then, of course, when I, <laughs> I graduated from high school, uh, by, through the recommendations of my high school uh, teachers and all that, my dad decided to send me to the University of Dayton, which is also a Marianist-run 
uh, Catholic University. Uh, it used to be a lot more steeped in Catholicism, in as much as uh, many of the professors there were also priests and brothers. Uh, not not nearly as many, of course, as in high school. I mean, they had right. they had <laughs> they don't have that many people educated in engineering subjects, but. Um, so, but still in all, the overall environment in the university was a Catholic environment. Um, although there were some challenges to that. I remember <laughs> I, we had to take, uh, as, as being a Catholic there, uh, we were required to take religion classes for the, at least the first two years. And, uh, you know, most, most other students going to a, a secular university, they, they don't get anything in the way of religious education. But we did, because it was a Catholic university. Uh, the people there, the staff decided that that was a very important element in all the students' lives. So we took um, some Catholic courses throughout the, our college education. And one, one I remember in particular, <laughs> this was taught by a priest. Uh, it was called, uh, I, I forget what the title, but it had to do with, uh, with marriage. Um, and I think it was a it was one semester course or something like that. Uh, and this guy thought so much of of the course that uh, it was it wasn't rumored; it was confirmed that something like a, a year or two after he taught the course to me and my classmates, uh, he got married. The guy, <laughs> he he kind of fell away from the priesthood and got married. I mean, it was interesting. Yeah, it was a very unusual situation back then. I mean, this was in the mid 1950s, and uh, I mean that that kind of thing just didn't happen then. You know, there there's more of that kind of stuff going on in the last 30 years or so. Uh, priests, uh, you know, leaving the priesthood and whatever, and uh, going into marriage or or just single life. But um, but back then it was pretty much unheard of. I mean, it, it was really a very rare occurrence. But this guy, like I say. <laughs> We all got a chuckle out of it, all my classmates and I, because, you know, the guys spent a lot of time teaching us about marriage and uh, how important it was and so forth and God's plan for things. And um, somehow he sold himself on the idea, I guess. <laughs> he decided yeah. to go do that instead of being a priest. So at any rate, we got a chuckle out of it. Um, let's see. Well, yeah, let me move on to... Uh, this is probably not in the right kind of order necessarily, but... Oh, it doesn't have to be in any particular order. You know, it's not a... The questions I send you aren't any grading rubric or anything. It's just kind of prompts to get you thinking, so... Right. Well, and they have, you know, I, and I wrote down uh, responses to each one, but I'm not sure I... In order to uh, tell the story of my faith, I'm not sure I'm putting in in the, in the correct kind of order. Right. Yeah, yeah. Feel free to, you know, <laughs> yeah. go with whatever direction you want. Yeah, right. So let me... Uh, but yeah, they okay. I, I do have an outline here that I think will probably keep me pretty much, you know, relating the story of my life and faith in a good kind of a way. The one one thing I'm I'm about to skip a little bit on, though. I think I'm looking over my notes here. Um, yeah, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna skip. Yeah, I'm going to skip right to uh, one, one of the questions you had is, have I had any spiritual mentors throughout my life that stands out? And, uh, and a, couple of, a couple of guys did come to mind. 
pretty quickly when when I pondered that question, uh, and there they happened uh, not so long ago. In other words, <laughs> fairly recently in my in my life. Okay. So I'm I'm kind of skipping over a whole bunch of years, and I'm going to describe sure, in sure. a couple of minutes. But uh, but these these two men, um, they're both priests, by the way, um, and they really stand out in my mind. Uh, Father Bob Franco, uh, whom I, I know your parents know him very well, um, he used to be the pastor out at uh, Holy Family Parish out in Stowe uh, many years ago. <laughs> I can't even remember how many, probably approaching 20 years now uh, that he was out there. Uh, no, he, he was not the pastor. He was assistant, associate pastor, whatever they call him. Okay. But in any event, I got to know him through... Uh, through the Bread of Life community and, and through the, the charismatic renewal uh, that was going on in the church at the time. And he was the first guy I ever asked to become a spiritual guide or, or a director for me. Um, in the past, I'd never had a spiritual director. So, but I approached Father Bob, and, uh, and he was quite, quite willing you know, to take me on. And he set up a thing of, you know, we'd, we'd meet once a month, for about an hour, and uh, I would kind of tell him what's going on in my spiritual life, uh, difficulties I might have been having or whatever, and then look to him for thoughts or recommendations on how I might grow deeper in my faith. And uh, and that he was really good at. I mean, he <laughs> almost every time I saw him, like I say it was every month, for about five years I saw him, uh, he, he always wow. had... Yeah, I mean, he was very faithful to this thing. <laughs> uh, nonetheless, he always recommended books and articles for me to read. That, that were all, you know, Catholic in, in orientation, uh, but not, not about doctrine or whatever. They were just good inspirational books. And, uh, and then we would, you know, I would start reading them, and then we'd kind of discuss what, what was happening as a result of those. So, But I, like I say, I saw him every month faithfully for... For five years, and then he got reassigned. Actually, I, what, I only saw him for about three years over at the at Holy Family. Two or three years, he got reassigned to uh, Saint John's Parish up in Strongsville, which is a little farther away. Uh, but I decided to stay with him, and he decided he said, "Yeah, he'd be happy to continue with me." So we did, and so overall, it was about five years until his next reassignment, <laughs> which took him. Way up by the lake, over on West Lake or someplace like that. I mean, it was about an hour drive from where I lived. <laughs> and I told him at that point, I said, hey, Father, I think I'm going to have to find a new spiritual director. <laughs> i got to get somebody that's a little closer. You know, I, I can't be driving an hour or so. Uh, well, it was only once a month, but what the heck. <laughs> Nonetheless, I did. I, I uh I looked around and I saw Father Joe Crocker, who happened to be the pastor down at St. Vincent's Church in, in Akron. Uh, and I had known him previously anyway. And by that time, I had been going to daily Mass at St. Vincent's because they had a 6.30 a.m. Mass and it fit well in my work schedule. So I was able to go there daily. And, um, and I got to know him through that, plus uh, through other activities and whatever. But nonetheless... Um, he took my me on his shoulders as a spiritual director for about, I'd, I'd say, four years, roughly. Um, 
And he was also very, very good, very influential in my life. Um, and, I, and I think the reason I finally decided to switch, uh, he didn't move or anything. He's, he was still there at St. Vincent. But we, we got a good priest at, uh, at St. Mary's Parish where I was, uh, you know, I was a parishioner. Um, and that was Father John. Yeah, I can, and all of a sudden his name, <laughs> the name escapes me. Oh, Lord, this is awful. Uh, <laughs> very good priest. <laughs> Your parents know him very well. I'm sure it'll come to you. Yeah, it, it will. Uh, just all of a sudden, it, it disappeared from my memory bank. Um, I, <laughs> I can picture him, but I can't remember his name. At any rate, uh, when he became, he became pastor of St. Mary's Parish and was pastor for a goodly number of years. Not Father thought, Gerba, well, you know. Please? Not Father Burba? Bur Father Burba, yeah, Father Burba. Okay. <laughs> he took over after uh, Father Hilkert died. We had an interim right. uh, pastor for a while, and then Father Burba came. And uh, so nonetheless, because I got to know him through a lot of different activities in the parish, I decided, well, it, it made more sense for me to start going to him for spiritual direction. So I did. Um, and I'll have to say, yeah, he was good, but, you know, I had been used to something a lot more intense, I think, with both Father Crocker and, uh, and Father Bob Franco. And so f my experience with Father Berber wasn't nearly as profound on me uh, as the previous two guys. Did, did he, was he not able to devote the same amount of time, or did he just have a different style? No, it wasn't time. Uh, he was more than willing to meet with me you know, frequently. Uh, I think we just met once a month again. Um, but it, it was more a matter of his approach. I mean, he, he just, he was a good pastor, but I think he just lacked the gifts of being able to be a personal spiritual director or spiritual sure, sure. guide, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not sure exactly what kind of characteristics you have to have, but, but right, he didn't right. seem to have them. <laughs> so it was, it was more a matter of just not being able to guide me or direct me that much, you know? He was very open and, and willing to do what I what I asked him to do, be a director for me. But um, but he just didn't have the, the gifts to do that. Yeah, like I say, he was a good pastor though, and and looked out for his people a lot. So uh, I was kind of surprised to see that he didn't have the kind of personal gifts that you know that a spiritual director really needs to be able to guide an individual soul. You know. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless. I got over that. <laughs> um, so at any rate, I, I'd like to move from there on to uh, some of the other uh, thoughts that you asked me to think about. Yeah, yeah. More, uh, some of the most profound spiritual moments in my life. Uh, that kind of gets me started into some of, some of the history of my, my spiritual development, if you will. Um, and I, right away, I think of, um, well, first of all, my, <laughs> I wrote this down because I got a. It, it just came to my mind, <laughs> and I and I wrote in parentheses. This is not necessarily spiritual, but I, but I had a crush on my fifth grade teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a profound spiritual moment, but I, maybe not so spiritual. But but Sister Dominic, <laughs> she was <laughs> she was very young, and she was very beautiful. Now here, you, you got to remember, I'm like ten years old or something. Sure, <laughs> fifth grade. <laughs> so you know my 
my uh, my judgment of of adult women at that time was limited. <laughs> but but I knew beauty when I saw it, and she was a beautiful woman, and very had a had a very pleasant personality, and, and in fact, you know, at, over that year of having her in fifth grade. Uh, I wrote down a note here that I actually dreamed about her. You know, I, I'm not sure why. It just huh. that's the first and only teacher that I've ever dreamed about. <laughs> and it wasn't in any erratic way. It was just, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I just had a very close relationship with her. I thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially when she had to punish me. <laughs> so the, the nuns all had the same. Same approach to uh, punishment or disciplinary action when, when you did something you weren't sure. supposed to be doing in class. <laughs> they'd stand you up in, in the front of the class, you'd hold out your hand and they'd get the ruler out and <laughs> they'd slap you across the palm of your hand a couple right, of times right. with a ruler. <laughs> that would wake you up. <laughs> I mean, it didn't hurt bad, but you never got yeah, a Yeah, probably embarrassing. Well, it was. <laughs> Enough so that you probably didn't do it too much afterward. After that, that was the whole idea. They were trying to say, "This is not a good thing to be doing in class, so don't do it anymore." <laughs> and here's the, that was the way they enforced it. But you know, and like I say, boy, today if they tried something like that, there'd be lawsuits and all kinds. They'd be violating all kinds of laws about, you know, uh, I don't know, doing any kind of work with children, but. That's because our, our whole system of laws has gotten so badly distorted, not because it's good. Uh, at any rate, right. so uh, just moving along then from, from fifth grade, jumping over to uh, all the way up to 1962, which is a pretty big leap in time. Um, I remember that was a profound moment in my life. It was the birth of my first child, Greg. Uh, and I, it was it's strange because, you know, you get married and, and uh, you know, you're forming a love relationship and continuing in that. And then all of a sudden, the result of that love relationship produces another life. And, you know, at that, that moment, I was aware of that. I was aware of cooperating with God to bring new life. And I remember holding Greg in my hands and thinking, wow, you know, I mean, what a great gift this is, you know, and... And what, you know, it seemed like what a great thing that God entrusted to me because, you know, I didn't, I had no idea how to be a father. <laughs> Nobody had trained me or anything specifically right. to be a, a dad, but, but here was my opportunity and, uh, and it just came calling in the person of Greg. So that was, that was kind of a, a profound spiritual moment for me, just making me realize that who this was, you know, this was not just. Um, another human being even, uh, but this was a personal gift from God, uh, someone that I, I was personally responsible for. And, uh, and that made a big difference in my life. And then a couple of years later, uh, there were, in 1964, I wrote down four separate events that happened in my life that were all profound spiritual moments. And wow. by that time, uh, I, I was, my, my own personal relationship with Christ was growing a lot through prayer and the sacraments, uh, reading scripture more, uh, and, and talking with other men about, about my uh, faith life. Uh, by that time, I was, I was actually talking and sharing about it. Nonetheless, 1964, very early on, February, 
February 24th, to be precise. <laughs> I think that's 24th. When's your mom's birthday? <laughs> oh, it, I always I know it's around, around Valentine's Day. Day. <laughs> I keep it in my calendar, so I never remember off the top of my head. the 24th or the 27th. I'm sure it's the 24th. <laughs> yes, it's the 24th. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, <laughs> that was... That was another very profound moment in my my spiritual life, my faith life. Was uh, when your mom was born. Uh, I remember when I when I held her in my arms. It was even a, a a deeper sense of this gift from God. You know that that I had cooperated with Him in the way of bringing forth new life, and um, and it, it just was a lot more meaningful to me than my first child uh, for some reason. But uh, I guess maybe maybe your mom, because she was a girl, I, <laughs> I had a, yeah. a closer devotion to her or something. I don't know what it was. But I do remember that being a pretty profound moment in my life. Uh, and I grew spiritually from that. Uh, the second thing that happened that year was uh, graduating from Xavier University with, with the MBA uh, degree. And... Uh, yeah. yeah, and the and that you know even though I mean it was a secular degree it didn't have anything to do with uh, uh, spiritual life, but in my life it did because I had almost quit uh, going going to the program in my uh, second semester. I was one semester from the from graduating, <laughs> and by then I had been going three and a half years every Saturday morning driving down to Cincinnati to to get this degree. And, uh, you know, by that time, I felt like, gee, I, you know, I had learned everything that I needed to learn from this MBA course. Uh, this last last semester, I knew it was going to be a real, real dog because uh, you had to write a, a, a research paper, uh, you know, an original research paper of some kind based on some, some business thing that, that was going on in your life. Uh, well, in my case, you know, they allowed me to write about a technical thing because I was an engineer, but um, I, th I just thought, hey, I don't, I don't think I really even need to do this. I think <laughs> it was a pain in the butt to have to keep driving down there every Saturday morning. Right. So I almost gave up, and uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was my wife that that kind of finally talked me into it, saying, hey, you know, you went for the for the whole degree program, not just for an education. And the degree program was there for two things. One was to get more uh, education, if you will, in, in business administration. And then secondly, um, it meant the possibility of better jobs in the future. You know, if, if you hang that, that degree on top of your resume, it means a lot more than just saying, well, I took three and a half years of business courses right. <laughs> at, at Xavier University, you know. And they said, well, that's nice. <laughs> so you took some accounting and economics and all those other things that go into it. Uh, so what? <laughs> you never you never finished. You never got to the finish line. So at any rate, I, got, I was talked into going. And, uh, and when I finally did graduate, I was very much aware of God's grace uh, getting me through that last semester in particular, because it was a tough one. I mean, I, you know, it was very intense, and um, it was only one semester long, but it was pretty intense. And by that time, I had two children. <laughs> and I was 
already. I had a great family life at home that I was trying to pay more attention to. But uh, at any rate, I was very aware of God's grace there. And the third thing that happened that year where I was, again, aware of God's grace was receiving my uh, PE license, professional engineer's license. Uh, right. That's that's another thing that, you know, you, you don't get right off the shelf. Um, it takes eight years <laughs> of devoted service of some kind. They, they allow, back then anyway, and I think they still do, they count the four years of your going to college, engineering college, as four of the years. Uh, then you had to have four more years of actual engineering experience uh, before you applied for and took the final test to become a professional engineer. So, and again, you know, it's, you know, <laughs> the last, the last test is always tougher than the first one. <laughs> right. When you, when you take the first test, you're fresh out of, out of school, you know, and you know a lot more about the subjects than what you do four years later. Most of them you've forgotten, you know, all the fluid flow courses and dynamics and heat transfer and statics and dynamics. I mean, all these, all these courses you took you know, that, that were really tough. Um, you haven't used most of those for the last four years. You've only used a few of them. So you've got to take a test again, though, to, to show that you really know your stuff. And, um, and I did, and I passed it. And uh, So I was, I was very much aware of God's grace getting me through that. Um, and it was also something that, that in the long run, finally, I mean, it, it actually made a difference in my career. Uh, it didn't immediately because the job I was in didn't require uh, anything like a PE license. But right. later on, you know, when I, when I started working for the county, uh, those last ten years or so, uh, that made a big difference because you know they they wouldn't allow you to sign off on plans or anything like that, uh, building plans unless you had a, a PE license, and you had to have a, a stamp to go with it. <laughs> So you could stamp the drawings and say, that's me. I approved these drawings. And if that building collapses or that ditch falls in or whatever it was we were building, uh, well, I'm the guy to blame. <laughs> so at any rate, um, probably the fourth thing that happened that year and it's in the most profound event of all was uh, I, I made a four-day retreat. Uh, it was called, back in those days, they had, it was called a cursillo, uh, which is a Spanish term meaning mini retreat, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, that that's, really doesn't have a, a deep meaning. But, uh, but it was, it was th the way they designed it was to build your, rela your personal relationship with Christ. Um, all of the talks and, and all of the things, the activities they did throughout that four days were geared at uh, improving a personal relationship with Christ, not just learning about your faith, but learning about the person of your faith. And, uh, and that, that really did make a difference in my life. I mean, from that point on, um, you know, I, I have to say that's where I met Jesus personally during that four-day retreat. And, and I, how and old I were recall, you? Please? How old were you at the time? Well, let's see. It was uh, 64, so I was 27 years old. Okay. Something like that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I was 20, 27 when I went to that Tercio retreat. Yeah, that's when, yeah, your, your uh, mom was born that year. Okay. And I, was, I was 27 and she was zero. <laughs> so, at any rate, um, 
Yeah, it was on, I, I specifically remember an event during that weekend. It was on a Saturday evening uh, where they had part of the, uh, the weekend deal was that each, each man there was invited to go over to the church and kneel up by the tabernacle all by himself. And nobody else came with you. You just went there and knelt by yourself and spent maybe half an hour or an hour or something, whatever, however long you wanted to. And, uh, well, I mean, I had done that before. I'd been an altar server and all that, so I had knelt up on the altar many times in my life. Um, but not like that time. I'll tell you what. I went up there, and I, I knelt down right at the top step of the altar, uh, right, right in front of the tabernacle. And, um, and I had an experience then that I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, I closed my eyes, and I remember I felt like I could reach out and touch our Lord, seriously. I mean, it's not that I could see him physically, but the sense of him being there was so real. Uh, I had never sensed that before in my life. And uh, I felt like I could actually reach out and touch him and that he could touch me. And that my life hasn't been the same since then. I've had some ups and downs and whatever, but, uh, but my relationship with God the Father and his son have become more and more personal uh, and mostly through that, mostly through his initiative, but through that one, one particular experience, that, that kind of changed the course of my life. It wasn't as though, you know, I had to repent of any deep, dark sin or anything, although I had plenty of those. <laughs> right. But, but it wasn't like that kind of a conversion experience. It was more of a conversion of living a life of faith based on knowledge versus faith based on living experience, you know, actually knowing our Lord instead of knowing about him. And that, to me, that has always stuck with me. And that was his gift. It wasn't something that I created or, or made available to myself. Um, I mean, he chose that moment to come and invite himself into my life and invite me into his life. And uh, like I say, I've had ups and downs since then. Uh, that was 1964, a lot of years ago. But um, but nonetheless, through all that time, um, my, I keep coming back to the personal relationship with Christ as being the foundation of my faith. You know, it's, it has a lot to do with the church itself and about, you know, the, the practices of going to mass and, uh, receiving him in Holy communion, uh, and going to the other sacraments and whatever. Those have a lot of influence on in my life, but the biggest single influence is he himself, Jesus himself, you know, he comes to, in my prayer, many times, he'll, he comes to visit me, so to speak. Uh, it's as though I can sit and, and just chat with him. And that's what I actually try to do nowadays in prayer. It's, it isn't so much deep meditation or anything like that. I, something that usually gets me going is reading some particular scripture passage or something like that. And beginning to think about you know what's going on in that during that passage, um, but it usually boils down to my then starting to ask him questions. You know, what is it you want me to do? And uh, you know, let me know what your will is for me in this particular situation. And, you know, give me some kind of a not necessarily a sign, but some indication that that I can, should continue on in the same path that I'm that I'm following. So at any rate, I. 
through the, that experience and through the continued experience of prayer and, and meeting with other men who had similar experiences, uh, uh, I've been able to, to really con- continue to search for the truth. Uh, and I've, you know, I have found through various means, uh, I found I've learned the truth of why he created me. And um, I learned that, well, I don't know, 10 years ago or so in a more profound way than I ever have before. And I, there are some things about the way in which we're created that are so simple, you just wonder why you never stumbled upon them in the past. <laughs> but then you, when you think about it, you realize, well, it's because I didn't make myself available to him. And uh, so I've come to know the truth of why he created me, mainly through uh, John Paul II's teachings on theology of the body. Uh, I, st- I started getting introduced to that about 10 years ago. And, and very simply, you know, God created me. God is love. And he created me to learn how to love as he does. That's, that's why I'm here. I'm here to love others, to give myself away to others. And he's also given me the desire to pass on this love by teaching others, uh, especially young people, about his love. And I've tried to do that in, in the, uh, the uh, Sunday uh, catechism classes and whatever. And I've even taught theology of the body to several different groups of uh, young people, and, right. and older people for that matter. But, but he brought the, the Lord brought me in touch with theology of the body many years ago, and I've learned why the body is so important. Uh, you know, I never thought much about my body or anybody's body, for that matter, except, you know, how we use it. <laughs> but I don't think I ever thought very seriously about why we have a body in the first place. And, um, and I learned through studying what John Paul taught me, a very simple thing, really. Uh, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote this because I, I wrote it down from, I wrote it down from memory, but I'm going to quote it. Uh, so that I don't mess it up. And he said, and this is in his Theology of the Body, uh, uh, dissertations that he gave many years ago. He says, the body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. It has been created. Now, here's the really big deal here. This This is why our bodies were created. It has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world, the mystery hidden from eternity in God, and thus to be a sign of it. Wow. You know, I thought, now that gives our bodies profound meaning. Our body was was created primarily to make visible in the world the mystery hidden in God. And that mystery has to do with how he lives as a communion of persons. We call that the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They exist as a community or a communion of persons, not a single person, but a communion of three persons. Now, I can't fully understand that, but I, I, I can know it and, and I can meditate on it and so forth. But the whole thing is we're, we're called to be a sign of that communion of persons. That's how we are to live our lives, which is why marriage is so very important. God created marriage primarily to be that sign of the Trinitarian life that he lives. And so that what he he created was a a relationship in which man and woman become one. 
And in their becoming one, a new life is, is brought forth. And that's the way the church kind of explains the Trinity. You know, they say the love of the Father and the Son generates the Holy Spirit. I and mean, that's one way of saying it. It's not precise, <laughs> but it's a way of knowing how the Trinity exists. It's not as though the Holy Spirit comes into existence through them, but he is the very essence of their love relationship between the Father and the Son. Now, you know, it takes a lot of thinking and praying and whatever to, to begin to grasp that more, but, but there, there's a mystery there that, that he purposely is trying to reflect in the bond of marriage. That's why he created marriage, was to reflect in the deepest personal way that he could what his, his life is like, what it's all about. And that's why marriage is so important. And that's why the way in which you know, we're, we're trying to redefine marriage is, is so, so twisted nowadays. You know, I mean, people are trying to, they act as though we created marriage and we didn't. God created marriage. And he had very specific purposes in mind for that. So now, I don't mean to give you a lecture. <laughs> no, I'm no. Just, I'm, I'm kind of spouting out those things that, that I've been taught and that, have, that are a part of me now. And why it's so important for me to know and, and to try to live out and also to, to bring that same message then to young people who don't really necessarily have that same kind of understanding. So at any rate, <laughs> I'll, I'll move on from there. But, but you can see that uh, my faith means a lot to me, Tom. I mean, Absolutely. I, and that, that's you know, why I wanted to ask you about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it drives me to want to do a good job, for example. The whole reason I, my 47 years of engineering work was so enjoyable, I'm convinced, is because I wasn't doing it for purely secular reasons, you know, to, right. to earn a living and to make money and, you know, and to maybe contribute to society and all that. All those things are good, but in a way they're secondary to the fact that God created man for work. I mean, when you look at all you got to do is look at the, the first chapter of the Bible in Genesis. And it, and it talks about, you know, that, about man being made for work. Uh, so that, you know, that, we're, and all that work is intended to be kind of a working side by side with God himself to continue to build the life of the earth or the world. Uh, I mean, we, we talk about it in terms of our earth. Well, there sure. may be other earths that, that, are, that are being built too. I don't know. But <laughs> nonetheless, um, it, it gives much more purpose and meaning to what we do. And, uh, and it makes it worthwhile. You know, I mean, I, I look around at a lot of guys who are very disgruntled with their jobs. You know, they, it becomes boring and tedious and whatever. And yeah, some of it is because, because of original sin. You know, that's, that's also in the first chapter of Genesis. You know, God said, hey, you know, when Adam and Eve screwed up, uh, they caused work to be hard. You know, it was by the sweat of a man's brow that he was going to have to earn his keep. Uh, it used to be, if you were in the Garden of Eden, work was fun to do. It was a good thing. You know, it, was, it was great. It was upbuilding and uplifting. But uh, nowadays, because of sin, it, it's become more of a drudgery in a lot of cases. But, but we can see the original purpose for work uh, as being, you know, doing it in combination with God's creation. Um, 
And if, if we can get to that point in our lives, it makes a big difference on how we approach our jobs. At least it did with me. <laughs> yeah. I had, uh, I had a lot of jobs in those 47 years, and I loved them all. I mean, I, I have to say that truthfully. I loved them all. I mean, there were some low moments in some of those jobs. <laughs> they weren't all fun. But, uh, but I, did, I, I enjoyed going into work every day. Uh, and I know a lot of guys who don't, you know, they just, they, they all, they go to work out of, you know, because they're obliged to do so to, to bring home a paycheck or whatever. But yeah, I think a lot of people uh, are in that situation. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and it's primarily because they don't have the vision of what their life is all about, the purpose of their life. You know, if they knew that more, um, along, like I say, as kind of a spiritual track, uh, they, they would get a lot more out of it and they'd be able to put a lot more into it. Um, but, and that's part of the job, I think, of, you know, those of us who have had the experience of knowing our Lord personally, uh, trying to help others kind of get into that situation. I mean, I can't teach people about it and, and have them know and understand God's grace, but I can help escort them along that path. Um, and in some cases, that's what I've tried to do with my life. But um, nonetheless, okay, let's move along here. I only don't have too many, too much time here remaining. Sure. Uh, and I'd like to, I, I do have just a few more notes here. Uh, you asked about, uh, let's see, I have any particular favorite Bible stories, verses, or books. And uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> I have... I wrote down, I just jotted down three or four or five uh, what I'll call favorite Bible stories. Uh, yeah, yeah. They're not in any particular order, but they, they just came to mind and I wrote them down. First one is uh, about the the blind man named Bartimaeus. You may have remember him, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. In, in Mark's Gospel uh, where he's, you know, Jesus is passing by and uh, and he hears, hears our Lord speaking and he starts, you know, calling out to him. He calls him as who he is, you know, and uh, and people are trying to quiet him down and all that. But finally, Jesus hears and and understands that he's looking for him, and so he just says, "Hey, send them here." And uh, at that, you know, Bartimaeus didn't just get up off his off his duff and and walk over. He literally sprung to his feet and threw off his cloak. Now there's I just found out more recently the uh the significance of him throwing off his cloak. I used to think, well, hey, you know, he was just trying to get rid of something so he could get over to see see Jesus quicker. Right. But um uh, but actually throwing off your cloak back in those days was very meaningful in as much as people did that when they had any change ma- major change happening in their life. They would throw off their old mantle to take on a new identity, if you will. And that's, <laughs> uh, you, have, you have to find, there are plenty of other stories about that. But, uh, but that's one of the things that that signified, him throwing off his cloak. He was about to make a significant change in his life. And somehow, he knew that was going to happen, but he didn't know exactly how. Um, all he knew was that he wanted to be able to see. And uh, so... And that's one of the favorite lines in that whole story is when Jesus just asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And I'm, and I'm thinking, Lord, I wonder if 
If he ever asked me that, what the heck would I say? <laughs> one, of, one of the reasons this is one of my favorite stories is because of the way Jesus handles it. I mean, it's just so simple and straightforward. You know, he, I mean, he knows already that Bartimaeus is blind. He right. have, you know, nobody has to tell him that. And obviously the guy would like to be able to see. So it, Bartimaeus doesn't have to tell him that either. But Jesus is a very uh, human person, if you will. I mean, he tries to act on a human level in a way that people can understand. And so he asked that simple question, what, what do you want me to do for you? And, uh, of course, Bartimaeus has the simple answer, let me see again. <laughs> I'm, I'm blind, Lord. Can you, you can tell that. So just let me see. And, uh, and he did. You know, it was just a, a wonderful thing that, that Jesus helped him to be able to see. But he was also seeking something more than just vision, his sight. He was seeking a better life. And he was able to have that by having his vision. You know, he'd be able to go work and do things and whatever that he wasn't able to do before. So that was uh, one of my favorite stories. Yeah. One of the next favorite stories I wrote down here was uh, about the rich young man that also approached Jesus. Um, and he was asking him, uh, you know, what do I need to do to gain eternal life? I, you know, and Jesus told him, well, you got to keep the got to keep the commandments, you know. Uh, and he, he reiterated all those commandments. And the young man, um, he wasn't bragging or anything. He just said, well, golly, you know, I've, I've kept all those commandments all my life. Uh, is there anything else I need to, to be able to, you know, be ushered into eternal life? And, of course, we know what happened. Jesus said, well, you lack one thing. You need to, <laughs> you need to sell all you have and then come follow me. Well, with that, the man's countenance fell, Scripture tells us, because he had a lot of possessions. And he really wasn't in a position yet to let go of all those uh, in order to follow Jesus. And uh, that's why, you know, in a way, I think it's the only story in the whole Bible in which Jesus' approach to somebody actually failed. You know, he failed to sell the guy on being able to follow him. I mean, he, he's, if you remember all the stories about how the apostles follow him, all he did was said, hey, you know, hop out of your boat and come follow me. You know, I'll, I'm going to show you how to be a fisher of men and etc." You know, and the tax collector, Matthew, when he came, you know, he said, just follow me. He said, you know, don't worry about all the sins that you've committed in the past. Just just follow me. And he did. You know, all, all these people that in the Bible that jumped to their feet and come follow Jesus, well, the rich young man didn't do that. He uh, he went off on his own. Now we don't know exactly what happened. Uh, hopefully later on, you know, he repented of all that and came back. But uh, but the reason the story uh, was meaningful to me is um, that it's it shows a better way to eternal life than just keeping the commandments. It shows that he needed to learn how to detach himself from other things so that he could love more. And um, any of the stories in the Bible that teach me about loving more have always been meaningful to me. <laughs> uh, another another story I remember is the one, uh, the woman at the well. Uh, I don't remember which gospel that came from exactly. I think it's mentioned in two different gospels. But um, but that, that one, you know, it always struck me because when I learned especially about how 
in that society, uh, you didn't, you did, especially Jewish men, didn't uh, approach single women to talk to them, and especially Samaritan women, because the Samaritans were kind of a whole breed of their own, if you will. You know, they were they they were just not very uh, favorably looked upon by the Jewish population, and um, and Jesus was a Jew. So you know, when when the apostles came and saw him talking at the, to the woman at the well, they were pretty shocked. But nonetheless, he did that because he knew what her condition was, and um, you know he offered he offered to give her living water. You know he was at the well and he asked first of all for for her to dip into the well and give him a drink, um, and then you know then he started spouting off about him being. The, the true uh, water of life, if you will. And, um, and she, you know, she said something about, um, about her husband. Yeah, she says, oh, yeah, he asked her about her husband. And she says, well, I, I'm not married. Uh, and then he says, of course, yeah, that's true. You're not married right now, but you have, you have known five men. <laughs> and, the, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> In other words, you're living in sin, lady. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't. Wasn't quite that blunt, but she got the message. <laughs> and and his final message to her was that, well, I'm not going to condemn you either, you know, because all the other guys were going to pick up stones and throw at her. Um, but but he said, I think I'm getting my stories here mixed up because I'm talking about two different women. <laughs> but anyway, oh. he he tells her. Yeah, there was one woman that was brought to him who was caught in adultery. Uh, that was a different woman than the woman at the well. Right. The woman at the well, he still gave the same uh, order to. He said, you know, he, he didn't condemn her for the fact that she had been married five times uh, and that the man that she was living with now was not her husband. But he said, go and sin no more. You know, I mean, it, it was clear to him that she was living in sin. And uh, it probably wasn't clear to her, <laughs> but uh, she, I think she got the message from her actions that are described later on. So nonetheless, just the gentle way in which our Lord uh, approaches people is something that you know really speaks to me a lot. Uh, and another, another favorite story is the one, uh, this is in Mark's Gospel, where there are four, four men carrying a paralytic on a little... Uh, pad or something like that, trying to get close to Jesus, and they can't get real close. He happens to be inside of somebody's house, and so they remove some of the the uh, uh, shingles, or not shingles, but the uh, tiles from the roof. <laughs> I don't know what the homeowner might say about that, but at any rate, they removed a bunch of uh, tiles from the roof to make a hole big enough to lower this guy down on his pallet in front of Jesus. And... Uh, and the amazing thing about that is when Jesus looks at the guy and it says in scripture and he sees their faith, not the faith of the man being lowered down on who was the paralytic, but he sees the faith of his four friends. And so he decides to do something about it. And, so, and he asks again, you know, <laughs> you know, what, what can I do for you? And, and he, he heals him. He tells him to get up and carry his pallet. And he, and he did. But the, the thing about the story that really impressed me was these four men 
who embarrassed themselves by doing what they had to do to get him close to Jesus. Uh, and I and I keep thinking about, yeah, I've kind of lived through that kind of a story several times myself, and I've seen other men live through it, where it it required other other good men to bring them to something, you know, to a conclusion or to help help them out of a, of a situation. Um, we can't always do things on our own. We do need the help of others. And these guys, you know, they, they demonstrated what friendship was all about by going to great lengths to bring their friend uh, to be placed in front of Jesus so he could be healed. Um, and that, you know, they had to have faith that Jesus was actually going to do that. There was no guarantee that just getting him there that the guy would be healed. But they had the faith to, to do it in the first place, and they did. And he was healed. So, in any event, uh, those are those are four uh, particular Bible stories that that have always impressed me. And I, I don't think about them a lot, but I've I've sure. used each one of those in talks that I've given over the years. <laughs> I've given a lot of talks, uh, you know, at different at retreats and various other places like that, men's gatherings, uh, things like that, and. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I try to search for some Bible story that's that's meaningful to the group of guys I'm speaking to. And uh, some of these have come up, I know. Um, looking a little farther past Scripture and looking at books, you asked about uh, are there any book recommendations I have for people who might be interested in deepening their faith. Um, and, yeah, there are there's several of them here, but... Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll say what they are. Now, some, <laughs> it's a wide variety. The first one is uh, written by Fulton Sheen, Bishop Fulton Sheen, you, whom I'm sure you've heard of. Uh, he's long since dead, but yeah. he was very popular back in the 50s and 60s. He had a, had a TV program uh, back in the 50s that uh, he competed with Ed Sullivan and other people like that and, and did better on the TV ratings than they did. <laughs> I mean, it was incredible. He had quite mm. a show. At any rate, he wrote a book called Life in, of Christ. Uh, I still have a copy of it. I don't refer to it very often, but I have read through it. And it's a, it's a real faith-building book. I mean, it's, it's not something that teaches you about doctrine or mo- principles or whatever, but it's just a, uh, it's a way of introducing you to living your life in Christ. And it's, it's very good, very good. Then there's another book that deals with, with love, and that is C.S. Lewis. I, you, I'm sure you've heard of him. Absolutely. And at any rate, he wrote a book called The Four Loves, uh, in which he, he specifically talks about the different kinds of love that men have, you know, the, the brotherly kind of love, the romantic love, etc. Uh, and then finally, the, the love that we have for God himself. And, and he kind of examines each one of those in this book. And it's, it's really good. Very well done. Um, a newer book that, that I have, actually, I haven't read it quite yet, <laughs> but I've read two other of his books uh, written by uh, Robert Cardinal Sarah, uh, and it's called God or Nothing. Um, I, I have it sitting up on my reading shelf there next to my chair, but I haven't opened it yet. But it was the first of three books that this guy wrote. And I read the other two. <laughs> I'm waiting to get around to his first one. <clears throat> the other two, <coughs> pardon me, the other two have been very, very good. 
you know, again, they're not they're not uh, teaching books so much as they are experience books. Uh, they they have a lot to do with his own personal experience of God in his life, <clears throat> and so uh, you learn a lot from that. And then finally, uh, I couldn't I I I have to at least recommend the book written by Pope Saint John Paul II. Uh, called Theology of the Body. Now, it's a pretty deep book. Uh, it's not something you just sit down on a Saturday afternoon and start reading. Uh, you, you, have to be, you have to have a real desire to grow in your faith and know more deeply about it. Uh, but it's from beginning to end. Now, this book is about, well, there's an intro that's 150 pages long <laughs> that he didn't write. <laughs> but the book itself is about 650 pages uh, and then there's a, a bunch of other things in the tail end of the book, after the, the book. The book is essentially the 129 uh, Wednesday talks that he gave over in St. Peter's Square over a period of five years. Uh, he, he always had a Wednesday audience. And, um, and he, he started this whole Theology of the Body dissertation. Uh, I think it was 1979 is when he started giving it. And, uh, and I don't know how people were able to do it, but, you know, week after week, he would give about a half hour or so dissertation on this subject matter. And it was all tied together. And uh, like I say, 129 different uh, presentations. And they put them all together in this one book, you know, after they, they translated it all, of course. <laughs> and then... And somebody published the whole thing. But it's a, it's a seriously good book for growing in your faith. Okay, just a, just a conclusion here, actually, um, was a, a, a scripture verse that pops into my mind once in a while when I'm, when I'm teaching high school PSR kids, <laughs> some, some of whom are your brothers and sisters right now. Both Gianna and, uh, and Nick are attending there. And I've used this particular quote on them <laughs> just because it's so meaningful. Uh, it ties together the whole idea of obedience and truth and freedom. Those three ideas get all tied together in one, one quote that Jesus says. And this is from John chapter 8, verse 31. And it says, if you continue in my word... In other words, if you obey my commandments, obey what I'm telling you, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. Well, truth happens to be Jesus himself, so that's what he's talking about. You will be my disciples, and you will know the truth if you continue in my word, and the truth will make you free. Well, the truth is embodied in a person, the person of Jesus himself. And that's what he's talking about in that, that particular passage. So he's saying, essentially, continue in my word, continue obeying what I'm telling you, then you will truly know, or you'll be my disciples, and you will know the truth. You'll know me, in other words. And the truth, I, will set you free. And uh, a lot of people don't really quite grasp what he's saying there. But, but it, there's some important truths there, uh, you know, We'll, we'll know the truth of our existence, why we're here, what we're to do, and so forth, if we dispose our minds and our hearts enough to want to follow him. 
And that takes an act of the will. You know, we can't, we don't just fall into that easily. Uh, and that's where people struggle. Uh, you know, all, everybody wants to have happiness in their life. And, and they all think that, you know, there's, there's lots of different ways of becoming happy that are presented to them through various advertising and movies and whatever, books, magazines, and you name it. You know, there's lots of, lots of ideas on how to become happy be self-actualized and all that. Well, they miss the whole point, you know, if they don't include knowing Jesus personally. Because once you know him personally, you know the truth. Because he is the truth personified. Any truth you want to seek, having to do with who we are and what, what we're here for and so forth, can be found in him. And um, in a way, you know, it's as simple as that, and yet as difficult as that because it requires uh, kind of turning over our own will to allow his will to act in us. Um, that's one of the hardest things we have to do is to give some part of our life over to somebody else. <clears throat> that's why love is so hard at times, because it means surrendering ourselves for the benefit of someone else. <clears throat> 